0: Had a great opportunity yesterday to uh, preach to preachers, which is something you don't get to do very often, so it was a lot of fun. We got to talk about entertainment. And uh there's a prison chaplain there and he invited me to come to Centinella Prison and talk to about four hundred of his guys. So I thought that was that'll be interesting. Haven't been in prison for a long time. Mm-hmm. Ministering in prison for a long time. That's what I meant. I didn't mean I was an inmate or anything. Okay, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter one. We've been uh, looking at uh, biblical anthropology in the book of Romans. That is the Bible's explanation for why man is the way he is. And what we've found so far is that man knows about God in his heart. He just doesn't like what he knows. He knows about God's divine nature. He knows about God's eternal power and his invisible attributes, says verse 20. But Paul tells us that all men knew God. They did not honor him as God and were ungrateful. This ingratitude is interesting because when you think about it, even the, the ability to be ungrateful is utterly dependent on Him. So we have to live on God's good gifts and using those gifts we disrespect Him. He gives us life. He instills in us these noble capacities to think and to create and to choose and to worship and men use these very capacities to turn on Him to despise his position as creator and judge, and make gods of their own imagination. And so verse 21, it says, The mind gives itself to vain and empty things, and a cloud of darkness overshadows the soul, the heart, and man becomes foolish, verse 22 says. But in all of his foolishness, he believes himself to be wise, because God has endowed him with these magnificent gifts. So he's proud of the gifts he's given by God's grace and uses those gifts to turn away from God and do his own thing. So just as fire can be used to uh, warm a home or burn somebody's house down, so God's gifts can be used to honor him or they can be used in a twisted and perverted way um, for ends that he would condemn. But man acts and purposes things which are abhorrent to God's holiness and his very nature. And humanity has done this so deliberately and so purposefully that the Bible declares all men to be, the end of verse 20 says, without excuse. And verse 18 says, we are targets of God's wrath, which is aimed at all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. One aspect of that wrath, something at work even now, is God's decision to let people have their own way to go in their own path, to move forward in foolishness. And so Paul tells us three times, he says, God gave them over. Verse 24, he says, God gave them over to the, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, it says, God gave them over to degrading passions and natural desires. And then in verse 28, it says, and just that they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. And there's a very clear connection here as previously between the inner disposition of man, his reasonings and his affections and his motives and his evil conduct. Why are men sinners? Well, verse 18 says, because men suppress the truth because they love wickedness, unrighteousness. So they literally cast the truth out of their minds. They're so devoted to having their own way that they bury in their minds and in their hearts The knowledge of the true God. And also, as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, because men are designed by God as spiritual beings, because we have great spiritual capacities, because we're persons, we're designed to actually relate to God. So spirituality keeps popping out despite all these human efforts to suppress the truth. So man has to deal with all these spiritual longings that he has, and he won't turn to the true and living God. So in his foolishness, he turns his spiritual longings to directions which are vain and empty and foolish. An exchange takes place. That word exchange is actually used by Paul. A made-up God is given reverence to try to satisfy the spiritual longings of men's hearts while they still can suppress the truth. So it isn't religion that he's suppressing Religion is a tool of suppression. Religion is a place man turns to help suppress the truth about the real God, the one who's really there. So we find substitutes. Idols, spirits, demons, gods, all sorts of unworthy inventions and vain imaginings. And we live in such a fascinating time because having been freed as people see it today from such rubbish as the Christian gospel and now we're past all that we can actually see for ourselves as, as people living in this day we can observe people returning to vain things and idols and you can actually watch it happen in the culture it's, it's an interesting time because a hundred years ago anybody would be really embarrassed to admit that they worshipped idols or turned to vain things. I mean, it was silly to do that. I mean, publicly to do that. So turning to magic or crystal powers or stones or idols of wood or paper or Mother Earth, you know, Gaia, the sort of ecological deity, um, witchcraft or astrology or divination or um, these uh, apostate Christian ladies up north who... um, Created this whole new uh, thing in, in this weird sect of Christianity where they worship Sophia, who is the feminine version of the deity, you know, um, as an alternative to God the Father, whom they despise because he is a father. They openly declare that they prefer, this is in their worship, they prefer the honey of sensuality to the blood of the cross, which is something they reject. It's an amazing time to be alive because it's, all the stuff Paul's talking about is right here. In our culture. It's just really amazing. So God gave men over to this, to their own lusts, which can even take unnatural paths, which you talked about in verse um, 26 and 27 we talked about last week. But out of it all, um, all of it's out-of-bound stuff. All of it is in defiance of God's created order and his own righteous ordinances. And as we saw in verse 28, they um, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer There's a really interesting relationship between the word acknowledge in verse 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God and the word depraved, at least in the New American Standard. If you've got that, that's the the language that's used there. It says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Both of those words, the word acknowledge and the word depraved, are very similar words. They have the same root and they're almost exactly the same. Both of them have a common source, which refers to the uh, disapproval of something that's been examined or tested so the idea is men did not approve of God they did not want to have such as he and their thinking and decision making so he gave them up to a disapproved mind they didn't approve of him so he gave them up to something that he doesn't approve of their own minds Leon Morris the uh, theologian and Bible commentator put it so well I'm just going to read part of what he said about this he said they refused to have God in their knowledge they thrust him out of the out of their circle of acquaintance. Their ignorance of God was not due to a lack of opportunity to know him, but to their deliberate refusal. They preferred other things to the knowledge of God, and because they rejected the knowledge of God, God gave them over the third use of this terrible expression to the consequences of what they had done in both thought and action, namely to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. The word depraved meant originally that has not stood the test It was used of coins that were substandard. The choice of words is another of Paul's ways of bringing out the fitness of things. They did not approve to know God, and they came to have an unapproved mind. Paul is not talking about an arbitrary process, about people who received the due result of their evil deeds. Mind is the usual word for the thinking faculty, but it can mean the intellectual part of conscience. The result, then, of their refusal to accept the knowledge of God is seen in the way they came to think and the things that their consciences came to approve. Their minds became quite unable to make trustworthy moral judgments. They had cut themselves off from all the joys of the knowledge of God. They were delivered over in consequence to the narrow, joyless existence of base minds and improper conduct. It was the only course left they left open to themselves. They continually did what is not becoming, not fitting, not acceptable, he says. And here we are seeing the doctrine the Christian doctrine of human depravity budding forth out of this text that man is essentially evil and filled with corruptions and perversions of his heart that doctrine will come to full bloom in chapter 3 he's just beginning really to get into it now and it's important that you understand this doctrinal point this theology because it should be foundational to all of your thinking it's critical to understand this critical if you miss this you miss the Christian religion altogether That man is depraved has to do with his relationship to God. When we say that men are depraved, we're talking about in man's relationship to God, he has a depraved mind, which is the word Paul uses here. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that people aren't nice. Righteousness and niceness are two totally different things. Righteousness has to do with your standing before God, an infinitely perfect holy being. Niceness means when your neighbor's dog is sick, you take him some little food or something or you take care of him. I mean, that's nice. Nice and righteous are not the same thing. Everybody's nice. I mean, I just give people that. Not everybody is nice. But I just give everybody that. Let's say we're all nice. Okay, that doesn't have anything to do with your standing before God. That human beings are social creatures and have affections for one another and derive pleasure from each other, that is not in question. Everybody, Everybody has that experience. Jesus himself acknowledged man's goodness to his own, to his family and his friends. He also said that that kind of goodness was of no spiritual value whatsoever. It was meaningless. If you're measuring yourself as some kind of a spiritually uh, godly being and you say, I'm really nice to my kids. I love my wife. I treat my dog well. Um, I'm nice to the guys at work. If you think that is godliness, you are really off the mark. That has nothing to do with it. Everybody's nice like that, pretty much. Most people forget the words immediately following the golden rule. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus lays out the golden rule, which is the highest rule ever, from any source ever, anywhere. And he says, verse 31 of Luke 6, just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. That's called the golden rule. That's the only place that teaching comes from. Uh, I keep running into people say, everybody believes in the golden rule. No, not everybody believes in the golden rule. Everybody believes in the silver rule. Silver rule is don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. That's what all the religions of the world teach. It was Jesus who said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which places an enormously different burden on you than if you just said, well, I'm not going to do to somebody else what I don't want them to do to me. See, one's a negative and one's a positive, and the positive has incredibly vast obligations to us, which the other one doesn't have. The other one's like, I'll leave you alone, you leave me alone. And this one is, I've got to meet all your needs, I've got to take care of you, I've got to treat you just the way I would want you to treat me. And then he says, right after he says that, and if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. You see, he's just not impressed with that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good and land expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So you see, even wicked people love their friends and pay back debts and do good to their buddies. We're not even talking about virtues yet when you're talking about being a nice guy. We're so so twisted in our own thinking that we we just, you know, we pat ourselves on the back for for being a nice guy, thinking that that's some real attainment. Maybe it is an attainment. Maybe we're so bad that being nice to our own family and friends is a really great thing. But Jesus is not impressed with that at all. Depravity, total depravity, is the theological name that we give to the human condition and that means that there is no good in us that satisfies God's righteous standards that he does not look at us as righteous beings in ourselves it says in the Old Testament in Isaiah 64 6 it says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him useless Paul is beginning to explain in Romans 1 why we so desperately need a savior from outside of ourselves to rescue us from our condition are stubborn and willful and vain existence. We are lost, to use biblical language, and have to be found by him. So many people are counting on going to heaven because they do things that wicked people do all the time. It's scary. Things that Jesus says doesn't impress God at all. We are so deluded and so smug in the suppression of the truth So here we are in Romans 1.28 with a depraved mind, an unapproved mind, doing things which are not proper. Our soul condition always manifests itself then in wickedness. He's saying we do things that are not proper because we have this mental state and heart condition. Then, Paul gives a list of things that humanity has been given over to and he starts in verse 29. It's just this huge list and we'll just walk through it. The first term, he says... um, in verse 29 he says being filled with all unrighteousness let's just stop right there with the word unrighteousness that's a general expression for any violation of god's holy law Um, unrighteousness is a carefully chosen word the book of romans is all about righteousness that's the theme where does righteousness come from how can i be right with god the theme verse 16 and 17 are the theme verses for the whole book verse 17 says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith remember and it is as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith the whole book's going to explain that one sentence Romans is all about how men can become righteous before God but before Paul gets into detail about how that works but he does tell us that it's by faith he needs to try to punch through that wall of denial that we throw up that so many of us have about our own unrighteousness which we just don't want to confess or deal with. So it tells us immediately that our unrighteousness, all unrighteousness, what that means. Verse 18. That's why right after verse 17 he has verse 18 because he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. How? In unrighteousness. He keeps using that word. So twice in verse 18 he uses the word unrighteousness and just as he summarizes our condition in verse 29 he uses that word again, unrighteousness. Now notice verse 29 he says having been filled with all unrighteousness the human condition is one of extreme guilt and culpability as measured by the standard not of niceness but of righteousness failed terribly. So all of what follows, then, in the rest of this chapter, are common and plentifully observed expressions of unrighteousness. So the next word he uses is wickedness, which is also a somewhat general term. It's a little more narrow. Satan is called the wicked one in the Bible. Um, Generally, it describes those who take delight in doing what is wrong, the wicked. Next, verse 29, he says greed, or sometimes it's translated covetousness. This describes the one who is, he's got an itch uh, and he needs to scratch it, if you know what I mean. He needs more and this is the one who's willing to take advantage of other people to get what he or she wants. This person has impure motives. This person is willing to distort truth at will. This person uses people in order to gain something. It's a completely ungodly way to approach life, but it's very common. The next word is evil. This has the idea of just willingly breaking the rules. Um, maliciousness, shameless, uh, shameless violation of, of God's rules. Then it says full of envy. You know, some people just see the whole world with envious eyes. Envy is when you feel ill will or displeasure in your own heart because another person is happy or successful or has something that you would like to have. Have you ever felt that way? Tell the truth now. I have, i felt that way. It's like, yeah, well, uh, yeah, they're not so great, you know, whatever, you know, that kind of thing, because they, they are great by comparison to you or whatever. You have to like pull them down in your mind. I just hate it when I find that in my own heart, but it, it's such a wretched thing. It's so depraved, it really is, to be envious. But uh, to actually have some measure of resentment because someone else has it better, that's just sad that's really sad it's corrupt very common though murder is the next one on the list full of envy murder murder usually flows out of envy often it does Donald Gray Barnhouse the great preacher wrote once that murder not only follows envy on the list it follows envy in life as well and it's true human beings find all kinds of rationales for taking other people's lives but this is certainly a sin that hasn't gone away either and it's even more common when you realize um, what it really means. Now, if you're talking about murder in terms of like killing people, that's still very common. It's common in our country. It's common in cultures where you can get away with it. In fact, in some places, the powerful are so above the law that murders are extremely common, Uh, very common. It's like a a daily occurrence, like it is in the United States. (laughs) Because, and you know, in here, of course, a murderer usually doesn't get caught, usually doesn't. And if they do, their penalty is usually pretty brief. I think seven years is the average, as I understand it. Seven-year timeout for taking a human life. One wonders how many murders there would be if there were no penalties at all. Just think about it. there are no penalties on murder, it was not against the law, what do you think the world would be like? That's the real issue. Because if you don't do something because you might go to jail for seven years or whatever, How many murders are there in the heart? You know, if you had a machine, and you could just go to it and punch in a name and kill them and nobody would ever know it was you, how many people do you think would just be dropping around? it would get to be a pretty, well, we'd have a lot more living space, I think, than um, if you lived. (laughs) But that's the real issue, the heart. Jesus equated anger with murder in the Sermon on the Mount. And in 1 John 3.15, it says plainly, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and then John says and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him everyone that's a scary that's a scary passage everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him human beings think they are virtuous if they actually don't go out on the street and shoot someone or hire a hitman but God looks at the heart of anger and sees a murderer there see that's righteousness that's the standard Verse 29, he talks about strife. That refers to a quarrelsome disposition, somebody that likes to argue and just stir things up and talk back and complain all the time and all of that. Uh, We don't know anybody like that, fortunately. It actually seems, this person actually seems to like to provoke contentions. They, They just sort of seem to enjoy that and create problems between people and upset the apple cart, you know, and get people talking and excited and angry. The next word is deceit. That's a pretty straightforward word. Some people just live to deceive or they think that living depends on deceiving, That they have to do that in order to get along. The Greek word used for deceit here um, has a root that means fish bait. It's the whole lure thing with a hook set in it, you know. You lure them in and there's something they don't know about that you're luring them with and deceiving them. Um, Malice is the next word. Aristotle described this word as taking the evil part in all things. It's that idea of just really enjoying evil. Just being drawn to it and playing in it and getting other people involved in it and all of that. Now, verse 30. This is one I know that no one here is guilty of. Gossip. Gossip. Some translations have whisperers. That's a pretty accurate translation of the word. Whisperers. Behind the scenes, yeah. Do you see what so and so? Did you hear about? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of thing. There's a lot of wickedness in gossip, and it's the cowardly way. It's, it just does so much damage. If you ever are guilty of talking about somebody behind their back when they're not there, that's just a, without ever talking to them or confronting them, that's a very evil thing, very evil thing. Strife, deceit, malice, gossip, they're all part of the same unrighteous nature. Gossip seeks to tear down and destroy, so it has to be shunned. John Chrysostom, the great 5th century church father and great preacher, they called him the golden mouth, he said, slander is worse than cannibalism because it, you're eating up your own, you know? And that's the next thing on the list. Very closely tied to gossip, slander. Slander can be done behind the back like a gossip or it can be done right to somebody's face, right in front of everybody. You just say a lie about them right there while they're sitting there. And, bear false witness against them, false charges. Or you can do it the secret way, the gossips way, behind the back. Slander is so awful um, to me that I'm actually amazed that people do it. I mean, when it happens, I'm just like amazed. I'm still amazed, even though I see it happen pretty frequently nowadays. I just go, wow, I can't believe somebody would actually tell a lie It's like about somebody else. It just seems so bad to do that. But they do, people do it. It's not that uncommon. The next thing is haters of God. Um, many scholars say this should be translated as hateful to God that is God hates whatever this person is doing that might be correct but other translators point out the fact that this is a whole list of things that people do not what God does or how God feels about it so needless to say both ideas have support in scripture Uh, God does hate sin and sinners do hate God Romans 8-7 says the mind set on the flesh the unregenerate person the person that has no um, new birth by the spirit in their life says the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God now if you ask the person say are you hostile toward God no I don't mind God God's okay but it's it's the living God the real God the God who's actually there the righteous one that's the one they hate not the God that they invent the idea of hating God fits right in with the next three terms insolent arrogant boastful insolent arrogant boastful insolence is prideful disrespect to others looking down your nose arrogance is a proud spirit boastful is the way of verbally vaunting oneself common common sins are you tired of sin yet we're not done yet there's more (laughs) he's not done next one inventors of evil some people there are some people who literally sit around and think of new ways to be evil i think they pay people to do that in hollywood but um, there's sort of, a new, it's sort of a new meaning to original sin. You know, we think of original sin as the original sin, but this is like original sin. Let's come up with a new sin, something new. Uh, the, these types of people are easily bored, and, and they need something newly twisted because that's where they get their joy in, in making new kinds of sin and maybe tripping up somebody else or something like that. And They, they, they like to uh, get involved in, in wicked things like that. They invent evil. The next one, disobedient to parents. That's a whole sermon in itself. And of course, reflect, the whole idea of being disobedient to your parents reflects man's larger rebellion and disobedience against our parent, who is God. Verse 31, without understanding, they just don't get it. Sinners. Untrustworthy, can't be trusted. Unloving, that's a really interesting term. It means without natural affections. Um, This was true in the ancient world; it's it's true now in in our own forms. There was quite a buzz this week about the new census um, that they took recently. You know, all that census data is coming out, and they found um, shockingly how much the traditional family has declined. I think in I can't remember when. You know, most people were in a two-parent family with kids. Blah blah blah. About half the culture lived that way in a normal what we would call a normal, traditional family home. Not that other families can't be normal, but, you know, the traditional family. And that, in just like 10 or 15 years, that has fallen to like a third of the entire country. I mean, that's a pretty shocking number. That's a pretty tiny minority of all the people and they were talking about and this is exactly what happened in Sweden you know people used to say well if you look at the Swedes how they just have free sex and free drugs and do everything they want the whole culture lives by itself I mean it's like there's almost no marriage left over there everybody lives alone it's really sad that's why the suicide rate is astronomical in those countries and we will be starting to become like that they're talking about the vast number of people that live alone and, and just um, the whole breakdown of relationships and all of that and uh, the loss of natural affection anyway I, I saw Bill Bennett you know who Bill Bennett is he's a talking head on these talking head shows but they were talking to him and he made an interesting point he said and just think about this um, without natural affection idea he said if a child is conceived in modern America they have a a 33% chance of being destroyed in the womb so only two thirds get born if they're conceived if he survives he has a 25% chance of being born out of wedlock and And also, if he survives, he has a 46% chance of seeing his family break up before he's 16 years old. That's just sad. So, you know, he's talking about without natural affection. That's what he's talking about, the, the easily broken bonds that normally would bind people together. Um, even killing their own children. And of course, now we have a good advanced technological way where you can do it and not see it. In the ancient world, they did have abortion, but it was riskier. So they, basically, people took babies they didn't want and took them out and left them in the open. They called it exposing infants. and they, It was common in the Roman culture. Um, it was a big part of the early church to go around and collect those kids and try to raise them to save their lives. But other people would collect them, too, for their own nefarious purposes. And sometimes they just die out in the exposed. Something's really wrong with those statistics, though, about our culture. Um, This is the the third millennium, you know, we're moving forward, the super sophisticated us, right? The next one is unmerciful. And, you know, there's a strain in many human hearts. None of these things are true about everybody. Well, I hope not. Um, But most of these things are true about... Some of us find ourselves in different places on this list. There's a lot of people who have a heart that just enjoys withholding mercy. There's a, a, a wicked pleasure there. Sometimes it's just outright cruelty. And other times, which is most often in my experience, it's just a way of getting even. It's like you've got to pay him back. So mercy is not on the, in, in the cards. It's not a consideration. So the, the payback attitude, which is very common, very common in our culture. When people feel wronged, then somehow they finally get an advantage over the person that wronged them, mercy is not in the cards. They want to twist and hurt and crush and destroy. and They find great satisfaction in exacting as much torment from the other person as possible. Merciless. Merciless. Now, finally we're at the end of the list. So That's a, that's a pretty sad list. But it's the concluding thought that's the most significant in all of this. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is a really interesting observation on Paul's part. Please realize what he's saying here. The human race is acutely aware of all of these terrible sins, even in ourselves, these failings. They know their hearts are bent towards some of these things, and they know that God hates these things, and down inside they know that these things deserve death, because the Holy God should not allow these things to go on. They know that in their heart somewhere. They deserve punishment at God's hand. And you know, when you look at all the major civilizations that have ever existed, whether they knew about the Bible or didn't, there is a law written on the hearts of all men. Paul talks about it in chapter 2. We'll we'll be talking about that coming up. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the really excellent book, um, The Abolition of Man, at the end of the book he has this whole series of, uh, it's a catalog Cataloging common moral principles that exist in all major civilizations. All civilizations that have a written moral code and religions. Whether they knew about Christianity or not. And they're pretty similar. I mean, and almost all the basic moral principles are pretty similar all the way down the line. That's because we're made in God's image and we all have a memory, a distant memory of God's original order. Let me just give you an example. Um, he has a category called the law of good faith and veracity. That is, honoring your commitments and telling the truth. All the major cultures. And he gives examples. Um, here's a Hindu one. A sacrifice is obliterated by a lie and the merit of alms by the act of fraud. Here's a Babylonian one. Whose mouth full of lying avails not before thee, thou burnest their utterance. He's talking about their relationship to their deity. they full of lying. They, it's a hateful thing. Another Babylonian one. With his mouth was he full of yea and in his heart full of nay? An Egyptian one, ancient Egypt. I have not spoken falsehood in a, a manuscript called The Confessions of a Righteous Soul. Anglo-Saxon. I sought no trickery nor swore false oaths. Ancient Chinese. The master said, be of unwavering good faith. Old Norse. I saw the perjurers in hell. Greek. Greek. Homer from the Iliad, hateful to me as are the gates of Hades is that man who says one thing and hides another in his heart. Ancient Romans, Cicero, the foundation of justice is good faith. Ancient Chinese, the right man must learn to be faithful to his superiors and to keep his promises. And again, Old Norse, anything is better than treachery. Anything is better than treachery. They all have pretty much the same idea, right? I mean, everybody recognizes that that is wrong. And yet we do it. You see. They know, even very decadent cultures know. In fact, Paul wrote the book of Romans in obviously ancient Roman days, but they knew as well. They had moralists. They had people that wrote and spoke and uh, chided people about right and wrong and living the right way. Roman moral thinkers talked about all these things you know they used to brag the romans actually bragged that they did not have a divorce in roman culture for 500 years i mean when they looked way back to their foundations all the way up until before the empire time but they said there had not been a divorce in rome for 500 years they really boasted about that but they cheated on their wives all the time so the roman moralists would say well you can boast about the fact that we don't have divorce but you guys cheat on your wives." and they said you have no right to cheat on your wife if you expect her to be faithful Now, you know, modern feminists always say that men have always held this thing over women and always had double standards. Well, there have been double standards, but everybody knew that the double standard was wrong. People have always said that that double standard is wrong. People have always said that men shouldn't do that. It's wrong. But they did it. You see, that's the point. They all knew it was wrong, but they did it anyway. And that's the whole thing. The Romans knew that slavery was wrong. The Roman moralists wrote about slavery as a bad thing. They said it was wrong. It was, people were misused. They asked people to make laws which would ameliorate the condition of slaves. They praised fidelity in marriage. They chastised men who, were, who cheated on their wives. Men like Seneca, there weren't many, but there were some like Seneca who condemned the gladiator shows, who said they were evil and cruel and inhuman. This is before Christianity had much of an impact on Roman culture. Some condemned the practice of exposing infants, even though it was done all the time, leaving these unwanted newborns out to be picked up. So they knew. They knew. They just did it. Just like we know, but we do it. And although I told you previously that, um, you know, I think a week or two ago, I said that pornographic pictures, you know, were really common on Roman walls and homes, you know, like they found that in Pompeii. I mean, that's where they had the evidence because you had these perfectly preserved buildings. You scrape the mud off the walls and go, put the mud back on the wall. I mean, it was just weird, twisted stuff. But even there, the Roman writer Juvenal, who was a... uh, a moralist who wrote about moral things in Rome he warned he said fathers should not permit any obscene sight or word in a house where a child is that was one of the things they knew that see he said let mistresses and loose songs be prohibited let the sight of your son keep you from committing the sin you're meditating on so they knew better like us and like us, they indulged in so many of these evils that they knew were wrong. Paul's list of sins describing his day doesn't have to be altered one bit from describing our day. It's the exact same thing because human nature is the same. But the last line of verse 32 is the clincher, where he says, although they, knew, they know it's sin and deserve death, he says, quote, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It is one thing to be a sinner yourself. To be trapped in some habit or disposition that's just hard to shake off. Something you hate in yourself. But real depravity is seen when you approve of it in others. I mean, both are depraved things. But when you're talking about the, the limits that depravity goes, it's one thing to say, gosh, I have this horrible problem. I, just, I lose my temper all the time or I'm caught up in this addictive person thing or I do this or I've done that and I, I feel so bad about it. But when you like it when other people do it, and you praise it, or laugh at it, or enjoy it, or entertain yourself with it, or whatever, that's that's really something. That's really going off the deep end. Passing it on. Helping other people to trip and stumble. That's when a conscience has been seared over. And you see this all around, all around in the culture. Not just wickedness, but it's celebration and the approval that's given to it. Loud and boastful praise heaped on immorality and corruption and revenge and all of those things. That is a sign of judicial hardening, of God as the judge expressing his wrath as he hardens people in their own wicked ways. And they go so far as not only to be sinners but to approve of sin in other people. So God lets them go their own way so all can see how far sin will take people, how far people will actually run with it. And it takes people to the absolute bottom where sin and evil, even when we all know how wrong it is, gets approval and applause. And even Christians in our day find ways to approve evil by their patronage and their enjoyment of filth. So Paul's description is right on and he's correct and he's right. He's, he's got us dead to rights. He's got this targeted and you can't just go, oh no, that's not true. You just go, yeah, yeah. Is there any hope? Well, not in chapter 1. Not in this part. But he's getting there. There is hope. I'll just give you a little hint where he's going to take you. Flee to Jesus Christ. That's where he's going. It's going to take him a couple chapters to get there because he's laying the foundation of why we need to. But I will tell you, that is the only hope. Only Christ can renew and purify a human heart. We have to come to him broken over the fact that so much of this is true of us and he will not only forgive, he will give you a new heart a totally different disposition. Not that you'll be perfect yet, but that you will actually see all of this as what it really is. The blinders get taken off, and you go, wow, sin is so bad. Oh, I I hate it. I, I see it in me. I hate it in me. And there can be real progress made. He alone is the foundation of true hope. Let's pray. Father we thank you for telling us like it is describing exactly the condition that we find ourselves we find our world who else has explained it if not you O Lord and we appreciate that because it it casts a light that's kind of uncomfortable because of the things it reveals but I know if we step into that light it can be a very healing thing if we allow it to transform us and change us give us the faith the trust in the all-sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, who specifically came to this earth to save sinners. Thank you for that promise. In Christ's name, amen.